welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. There, there are many, many schools of religion and thought. Uh, you can just think of the major religions that exist out there in the world, like Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Jainism and Shintoism and Christianity and we could go on and on with an endless list of various religions. And, of course, you're well aware that each one of these major categories of religions in the world are broken down into sects and denominations within each one of those categories, all of which are squabbling amongst each other, and some are even at war and trying to wipe each other out. We're become, we've become aware of that in terms of the wars of the uh, Muslims in the Middle East. But there is one thing that is a common denominator and is foundational to all of these major religions in the world. And I wonder if you can think what it is. It's the doctrine of the natural immortality of the soul. That also forms the basis of spiritualism. And, of course, spiritualism derives from the original teacher of it, and that is the devil himself, isn't it? But you think about, uh, for example, Buddhism. It teaches that the soul is eternal, and if it doesn't get it right in the first life, why it transmigrates into another body and another life, and it may go up or down, but it gets another chance after that life is finished with, and it's just an endless wheel of life until nirvana is reached. In other words, you have these two eternal principles that are coexistent forever, and that is good and evil, and neither one of them ever wins out. This is the basis of the doctrine of the natural immortality of the soul. Well, I just wonder how we would feel sitting down at a sumptuous banquet which the Lord might provide us as we first arrive in heaven and looking out the window and seeing that there are some poor souls over there in hell who are burning forever. Would we be able to enjoy that banquet? I wonder if the Lord Jesus would enjoy seeing that out the window either. Uh, It is possible that a God who is love as he says he is could be happy in his heaven while Is it possible while myriads of anguished people are suffering, continuing to suffer on and on and on? One of the major pillars that is foundational to the third angel's message is the belief that there is life only in Jesus Christ. And life is not natural or inherent within the soul of any person. There is life only in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Dear Father in heaven, as we seek to understand this pillar of truth in the third angel's message, we pray that you will reveal to us that there is life only in Christ. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen. 
The serpent's seduction of Eve there in the Garden of Eden was based on a lie. He said, you shall not surely die. In other words, Eve, you are inherently, you are naturally immortal. You are God with a little g. You can improve on your status of being God since you know already all there is about good. God has made you that way. You can also improve on your status of being God by knowing the knowledge of evil if you'll eat of this fruit. Because, Eve, there is this eternal, coexistent pole that is the opposite of good, and that is that evil is eternal, too. And you need to know about this knowledge, and it will make you, it will improve on your status of goddess, being a goddess. Well, ever since, pagans, as well as Christians, have believed themselves to be immortal. And this original lie was invented by Satan through the serpent, has subtly undermined the true gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, we are going to help us to understand this morning that the belief in the immortality of the soul actually sweeps away the whole necessity for the cross of Christ. So stick with us. Hold on to your seat, will you? The belief in the natural immortality of the soul is foundational to spiritualism. It's because... It's the, do- the devil of the doctrine, or, or the doctrine of the devil. He is the one that invented it. So you have everything from pantheism to predestination are justified on this principle of the natural immortality of the soul, and actually sin gets a pass because of it. And the whole purpose of the death of Christ on the cross is rendered superfluous. And the resurrection of the dead and the second coming of Jesus in glory becomes meaningless because of this teaching. So in one fell swoop, Satan completely undermined Eve's belief system about God when he said to her, you shall not surely die. Because written on her nature as she came forth from the Creator's hand was this Basic fundamental concept that the Lord our God is one Lord. Written on her very nature was the first commandment, Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. And now her mind was opened up to the possibilities of not only her being a goddess, but of an ever, never-ending pantheon of gods potentially inclusive of every living thing and non-living entity, and all of them possessing immortality. You know what pantheism is, you know, it's the belief that God is, everything is God. God is a rock. God is a monkey. God is you, and God is me, and God is good, and God is evil. Everything is eternal, and so is sin. And since sin and immorality is eternal, let lawlessness reign. There is no law. You are God. And so you declare what is good for you and what is evil for you. This is pantheism. Now I'd like for you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16. 
And let's see what the Bible teaches because it teaches us the truth about immortality. Amen? 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16 says that God only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. God only has what? Immortality. That has to be a standing rebuke to anyone who claims to have a natural immortality of the soul. And yet, the wonderful prospect is that you and me and everyone, no one is shut off from the possibility of obtaining immortality. Amen? Because just a few pages over in Romans chapter 2 and verse 7, we read, Paul tells us, for them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. So here we are told that through patient continuous in the, continuance in the good and seeking for it, we may obtain immortality. So if immortality is something that we seek for, then do we now possess it? No. Now the apostle says that Christ, in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10, that Christ, 2 Timothy 1.10, has brought life and immortality to light through what? Through the gospel. This is how to seek it, through the gospel. Amen? So from these verses, we are forced to the following conclusions. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, we read that the wages of sin is death, right? So no one who is a sinner and continues in sin can obtain immortality because sin pays out its wages, which is what? It is death. No one can have eternal life unless he seeks for it, and the only proper way to seek for it is by continuance in the good through seeking it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And since it's only through the gospel that immortality is brought to light and eternal life comes only through Christ, it's evident that anyone, if anyone rejects Christ, if anyone rejects the gospel, can they have immortality? No. They cannot have it. Now, it might be argued by some that while it's true that immortality comes from God alone, and God alone has life in himself, that he has implanted immortality in all human beings. Dear friends, this does not harmonize with the Bible at all. If men, if women are or were by nature immortal, then it would not be true that immortality comes through Christ and the gospel. If we accept the Bible as authority, then immortality cannot be bestowed until it is seen who have accepted Christ and have persevered in well-doing, and that cannot be seen in this life. 
for there is always a possibility of man's best uh, of the best of man's falling from from his steadfastness and continuance of the good. If it be true that all men have in them an immortal principle, then there is no such thing as sin. If all men and women are naturally immortal in terms of their soul, then there's no such thing as sin. Think about it. Immortality means you are exempt from what? Death. Whoever is immortal cannot die, correct? But the wages of sin is, according to Romans 6, 23, so that whoever sins will die, and no one will die except those who sin. So, if the claims that all men are immortal and that none can die the logical conclusion of that is that none are sinners. True? Think about that. In other words, wages will be given where they are due. And if death, which is the wages of sin, is given to nobody because they're naturally immortal, then it follows that no man is deserving of death. Can you see that the doctrine of the immortality of the soul leads to the conclusion that no one sins and that they have eternal life? I'll tell you, this immortal soulism is nothing more than pure universalism. Nothing more than pure universalism. Everybody has a natural immortal soul. Everybody will be saved in the end because they don't sin. That's the reward of uh, that they do not have any death as a result of that. Well, the fact of the matter is that we are presently mortals. That's what the Bible teaches, that we are subject to death. You know, when Jesus came in our flesh, he subjected himself to mortal, being mortal, didn't he? He chose to identify with us. In fact, as Paul tells us, he says, our flesh is mortal, our mortal flesh, 2 Corinthians 4.11. That's what Christ took. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Have you ever thought that as God, Jesus could not have died for sinners? Because God is immortal. He cannot die. But Christ became the Son of Man and was made in the likeness of men so that he could choose to lay down his life for us. So the next question is, well, when are we going to obtain our change from mortality to immortality? And the answer to this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 53. So I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 53. It says, This mortal must put on immortality. So when does that change take place? It says in verse 52, 
that when there is a trumpet sound in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, we shall be changed. Amen? So when Jesus comes to raise the dead and to call the living to himself, this is at his second coming, that is the moment that the gift of immortality is bestowed. Not before. Our life is hid with God in Christ. Now, the false teaching of the natural immortality of the soul says, well, you know, God created all souls when he created Adam. All souls were in Adam when God created him. Therefore, since every individual soul was incorporate in Adam when he sinned, all sinned. Everybody sinned, incorporate in him, so that when Parents give birth to an infant. That child is born in the very guilt of Adam's sin. And should that little infant die in infancy, why, his soul would have to go to purgatory to pay for the guilt of Adam's sin. So it's necessary for this little baby to undergo the sacrament of baptism by the sprinkling of holy water, and thus his immortal soul can be cleansed of the guilt of Adam's original sin. This whole idea of original sin is without foundation in the Bible. In fact, you can look in your concordance and you won't find original sin in, a, in the Bible at all or in any of the inspired writings of Ellen White. To connect original sin with the immortal soul of a baby that is derived from Adam is totally erroneous. But the most harmful and the most damaging effect of the immortal soul teaching is the undermining of the importance of Jesus' death for sinners. If the soul of sinners is immortal, then they have no need of eternal life. They already have it by nature from their creator. Immortal soulism just completely sweeps away the necessity for the atoning sacrifice of our Savior for sinners. By by definition, one who is immortal is not subject to death. Death results from sin. Therefore, one who by nature has an immortal soul has no sin. Hence, there is no necessity for the cross. Now, that's heinous. The doctrine of the immortality of the soul does away with the necessity for the cross of Christ itself. And even more astounding is the fact that if Jesus did not really or truly die on the cross because he had an immortal soul, then we are really faced with a cruel hoax that was perpetrated by Christ himself upon humanity. If Jesus didn't really die on the cross because he had an immortal soul, that was a fraud. Well, I'll tell you, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, and the life. And Jesus has nothing to do with lies or perpetrating frauds. In fact, there is no lie in Jesus at all. He said that I lay down my life for the sheep. Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 53, verse 12, he hath poured out his soul unto death. Amen. 
Let that sink in. He hath poured out his soul. There was no immortal soul in Jesus. He poured it out for death. Check it out. Isaiah 53, verse 12. So I'll tell you, everything about this slimy doctrine of the immortality of the soul has the fingerprints of the devil on it. Everything. His purpose is to destroy the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation from sin. For example, there's no, there's no necessity for the alienated hearts of sinners to be reconciled to God so far as appreciating what it costs the dear Savior to sacrifice his life. By some mystical act of faith, one can put his sins on Jesus once and for all. And uh, since the soul is naturally immortal, he is all set for death to be the door to heaven. Think about that. Death is the door to heaven. When was the last time you heard those words? I heard those words in this very church, not uttered by an Adventist, but by a husband who was mourning the loss of his wife in death. He had her in heaven. Death is the door to heaven. The truth about death is that it is separation from God. Yes. The truth about death is that it's separation from God. Jesus told his followers this, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, and you shall seek me, and whither I go, you cannot come. John 13, verse 33, death is separation from God, the withdrawal of his life. But although we should all die and become as water that is spilt upon the ground, which cannot be gathered up again, yet doth God devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Death is not the final answer, you see, as far as God is concerned. Well, what are the means that God has devised so that we not be eternally separated from him? Well, Jesus has told us in words of great comfort, which he spoke to his disciples, and they were sorrowing because he had told them, I'm going away from you for a while. And he told them, you cannot come with me. And so they were sorrowing over this. And so in John 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now those words show that the departing, uh, God's people departing and being with Christ happens only at his coming for them. That's the point. Those words show that the departing of God's people and being with him happens at his coming, his second coming. So it was for the coming of the Lord as far as the Apostle Paul. He longed for the day of Jesus' coming. He brought comfort to some of the Thessalonians there in chapter 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 and onward. 
where he assured them that God will bring the sleeping ones from the grave. But when he comes to the great climax of this truth, after stating that when the Lord descends, the dead shall rise first, and then we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, Paul did not say, and so shall we ever be together. But so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now that's the blessed hope. That is the blessed hope above all others' hopes. It is the being with him. It is the being with Jesus that makes it possible for friends to be reunited. The being with him. Because apart from Jesus, there is no reunion. There is absolutely nothing. There is no real friendship. There is no relationship, even in this world. It is all for Christ. Because of him, there can be no perfect union or reunion except in Jesus Christ. So, how shall we be with our friends reunited to meet them in the air? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. When the person dies, then Jesus comes and takes them to be with him. Is that what it says? The Lord will shout from, uh, there will be a descent from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And what's the next word? A little two-letter word, so. That means in this way. By this means shall we ever be with the Lord, and no other way shall we be with the Lord. So, that's how then? By the resurrection of the dead and the translation of the living. That's how so. (laughs) At the coming of the Lord. That's how Jesus, our Savior, has promised his fulfillment to take his people to himself to be with them. Well, from this uh, blessed truth, we can see that the immortal soul teaching really displaces the blessed hope and the resurrection from the dead. How so? Because if death is the door to heaven, then there is no necessity for an intense awaiting of the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead because the dead are already in heaven. The dead are already in heaven. Death then becomes a friend rather than an enemy, rather than separation from God. Amen? Death means union with God as far as immortal soulism is concerned. I'll tell you, this is twisted and backwards, and it flips the truth of God right on its head. We are plainly told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 26 that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is what? Death is an enemy. It is not a friend. It is not a door to heaven. Death is an enemy declared so by Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 26. Well, just how is this last enemy destroyed? We're not left in doubt. 
as to that answer to that question because in 1 Corinthians 15:51 it says we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality death is swallowed up in victory says paul The last enemy, death, is swallowed up in victory at the coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Where are the dead now? Where are the dead now? Do they know what happens on the earth after they've died? Can they return to their home as spirits? Can they work miracles? Can they frighten people? You know, some people believe that the dead are still alive and they can come and visit in all kinds of ways and they can come back and visit their home. I was studying with a lady early in my ministry in the Detroit area, Pentecostal, who was really interested in the Bible, and I made some visits to her home, and we opened the Bible together, and she believed that her dead husband came to her home, and she could feel his presence in that home, that her dead husband could visit his home. Well, strange to say, such teaching of that like that is never found in the book of God. Ecclesiastes 9.5 says, The dead know not anything. That is so clear that no one, not even a child, can doubt it. This teaching is the same throughout the Bible. Jesus said of his friend Lazarus, a friend who had died, that Lazarus sleepeth. And then Jesus said plainly, Lazarus is dead. In the book of Job, chapter 14, it says, Man dieth, and where is he? Man lieth down, he riseth not, till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake, nor be raised out of their sleep. If death is asleep, and if the dead know not anything, then it is certain that a dead man cannot return to his friends to frighten them, nor even to visit his house again. In Job 7, 9, it says, He that goeth down to the grave shall come up no more. He shall return no more to his house. Neither shall his place know him any more. Some of the famous uh, Messiah elders are experts in what they think is talking with the spirits of the dead. And the Messiah have not heard about the Bible teaching that the dead are in their graves and they cannot return to men. So when the Maasai witch doctors think that they are bringing back the spirits of the dead, they are really calling back evil angels who have fallen from heaven, who are purporting to be their loved ones who have died. It's evil angels who are pulling off the hoax. These evil angels can take the form of human beings even in their meetings. What a pity that good people do not know the truth that the dead are asleep. You know, the Bible draws back the curtains that separates the unknown vista beyond death, and it reveals its mysteries to us. And whatever death may be, it is something that cannot separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The apostle cries out in a joyous triumph there in Romans chapter 8, verses 38. He says, I am persuaded that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As a tired child trustfully falls asleep in his father's arms, so the one who believes in Jesus falls asleep in the father's care. And when Jesus' close friend Lazarus died, he said, Our "Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. And then his disciples said, Well, Lord, if he's asleep, he shall do well. However, Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. And then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. John 11 And then Jesus proceeded to raise Lazarus from the dead, even though the man had been dead for some time, and the family was protesting. They said, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he had been dead for four days, and everybody present could smell the evidence when the stone was rolled away from the tomb. And then Jesus prayed, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. He was bound hand and foot with his grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus said unto him, Loose him and let him go. All that in John 11. Well, what did Lazarus know about what had happened during those four days that he was in the grave? Was he conscious as a spirit or as a mysterious soul hovering over nearby his house? Had his soul or his spirit entered into some other person or creature? No. It was Lazarus himself who was resurrected. The Bible says that in the sleep of death, we are unconscious. The dead know not anything. Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6. Their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. David the psalmist said, Psalm 146, 3 and 4, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. Lazarus didn't have anything to say about those four days. It was a deeper unconsciousness for Lazarus than even being in anacoma. To the one who sleeps in death, a thousand years may pass by as a mere moment. When Lazarus died, the next thing that he knew, he was hearing the voice of Jesus calling him to awaken. And it's just like when you go to sleep at night. If you sleep soundly, you know nothing until the birds sing the next morning outside of your window. And seven or eight hours of sleep have passed, but a moment. And what happens at death? The Bible truth is clear and simple, easily understood. Death is just simply the reversal of creation. When God created man, he formed him out of the dust of the ground, it says in Genesis 2-7, and breathed into his nostrils, what? The breath of life, and man became a living soul. So the union of the body formed out of the dust particles of the ground, the union of that with the gift of the breath of life, which is the spirit of life, received from God, who is the source of all life, formed the man himself into a living soul. When a person dies, this process is just simply reversed. 
It says in Ecclesiastes that our bodies will return to the dust of the earth and the breath of life, the Spirit, will go back to God who gave it to us. Read it in Ecclesiastes 12, 7. So if you take pieces of wood and put them together with nails and you construct a box, the box did not exist until you put it together. Now, if you take the box apart and again separate it into pieces of wood and nails, what happens to the box? It simply returns to what it was before. It is no longer a box. The box has ceased to exist. But note, the, the spirit or the breath of life, the text says, returns to God who gave it. He's the source of life, isn't he? He is the one who imparts that breath of life. That life returns to God. It is safe in his hands. It's safe in the hands of a loving heavenly father. Our personality is in his care as a child is sleeping in the arms of his father. And he will recreate us as individual personalities in the resurrection day, just as the loving father will greet his child when it awakens in the morning. In fact, the father who loves his child can hardly wait until he awakens again. And so does our heavenly father eagerly await the the resurrection day to have us united with him. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. He wants to see us animated again. The resurrection is his idea. It's his idea. And like an artist who has painted a beautiful picture of you and me as you are now living and existing, so should death come, he wants to see that artistry again. He wants to see your living picture again. The resurrection is his idea. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands, Job says. Lord Lindsay, an archaeologist and traveler of the Middle East, uh, discovered a mummy. And the inscription proved that this mummy was about 2,000 years old. And upon carefully unwrapping all of the trappings around it, he found that was buried in the hand of this mummified man a bulb, a bulb or seed of vegetable life. And he was wondering just how long vegetable life could last, sealed up like that in a dry place. And so he carefully took it out and he planted it in rich soil exposed to the sun. And to his surprise, within a short time, the bulb grew into a wonderful, beautiful flower which appeared bursting forth from the earth. What would you give for a hope like that? That hope for a sleeping one, that hope of the resurrection of the blessed hope, that hope is about to be fulfilled. Jesus is soon to return. So take courage. On the resurrection morning, thy dead shall live too. Amen. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.